1: We would be honored if you would join us. Well, welcome to the Rebel Podcast. I'm P. Nate and uh, I'm here joined today with a very special guest, Jonathan Van Maren. And just before I introduce him, I'll get to uh, some of our quick business. Uh, this is the Rebel Podcast. We're part of the Reformed Rebel Network. If you want to check us out online, you can find us on Facebook or you can find us at patreon.com slash reformedrebel. Lots of different podcasts in our network, blog posts. You can find that at RebelAllianceMedia.com. But I want to maximize my time that we have with our guest. Jonathan Van Maren is uh, a speaker, a writer, a pro-life activist. He works as the uh, communications director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. I've written a couple books, including uh, The Culture War that came out in 2016, Seeing is Believing. You just seem to be everywhere. You're on the radio, you have a podcast, you blog at the Bridgehead. So I was first introduced to Jonathan Van Maren. Uh We have a mutual friend, Joe Boot, and I know you spoke at the, uh, the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. And we seem to be passionate about a lot of the same things. So uh, Jonathan, mm-hmm. why don't you just introduce yourself and your ministry a little bit from your own words?
0: Well, I grew up in a, in a reformed household, and abortion wasn't really a subject that came up a whole lot, which is, is something I think is true for, for most people. And it was actually first year of university that I really got introduced to the topic. Uh, my professors had brought it up, and I didn't really know how to discuss it or debate it per se. I think I knew instinctively that this was not something that I agreed with, but that was about it. And I went to uh, the library, and I googled the word abortion, and that's when I saw a video of a baby that was being really pulled apart, and that video changed my life. I realized what abortion actually was. I started looking for opportunities to get involved in the pro-life movement. I think I gave my first presentation to a reformed church youth group a couple of months later, and then the pro-life movement ended up derailing my career entirely. And I ended up working for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, uh, working to shift public opinion across Canada on this issue, reach out to people, change their minds on this issue, persuade people to cancel their abortions. And so this certainly wasn't my my, my first plan for a career, but it sort of happened to me that way.
1: It's interesting you say that abortion activism or pro-life activism kind of derailed your career. And and when I think about you and I think about just how outspoken you are on this topic, and I know that our church, our podcast, we we try to be very vocal on this uh, issue. And this seems to be the thing in Canada that there seem to be a lot of controversial things that you're allowed to talk about, but you're not allowed to talk about this. And even in, in my conversations with local mm-hmm. MPs in our writings, as I try to get together with all the candidates uh, whenever a federal or provincial election comes up, and this is always a topic I bring up with them, it's yeah. just amazing. I mean, you're making your living, you're you're a pro-life activist, and Canada is one of the worst countries in terms of our abortion laws. I mean, we're right up there with North Korea and some countries that most of the Western world con- would condemn for their human rights violations. So How have you found it?
0: A couple of interesting things there. You're correct in that we're not in particularly savory company in terms of uh, where we are on the human rights of the pre-born. But one of the reasons it's so difficult to have a political discussion on this issue is because the abortion activists are are fully aware of the fact that if this discussion happens, they will lose. All of the polling data actually shows us that the vast majority of Canadians would be fully willing to accept restrictions on abortion. Interesting thing that we have found going door to door, talking on the streets and on the campuses is that the vast majority of Canadians think we already have laws. So right around a, like a full eighty percent of Canadians are not aware that we have no restrictions on abortion at all. Right. So when you've got people like Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying the majority of Canadians support the status quo, he's kind of doing a little bit of verbal trickery there because the reality is that the majority of Canadians support a status quo that they think already exists, but doesn't. Right. And that's one of the reasons that the abortion movement and the pro-abortion politicians work so hard to shut down this discussion entirely, because the more Canadians find out that abortion is legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy, the more Canadians find out that there are babies born alive in Canada and left to die after abortion, the more they react with horror. Yeah. And, I, and I and I can speak to that from my own experience. That's the primary reaction we get door to door when we tell them what the status quo is. We have people that Google it on their phones while they're standing there because they don't believe us. And I'll just give you one example of how desperately the abortion movement wants to shut down any discussion. And the, I don't know if uh, your, your listeners are familiar with the organization We Need a Law, yep, which is basically the, the pro-life wing of the Association for Reform Political Action. Uh, they had a, a signed campaign about a year and a half ago where they just had billboards all the way across the country with the, with the very simple and factual statement, Canada has no abortion laws. There was one of them actually, uh, you know, just a block away from, from one of CCBR's offices here. I saw them all over the place. And the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada went nuts and they lobbied to have these ads taken down because they said they were misleading. Now, like these ads didn't even say that, uh, you know, we have no abortion laws and this is a bad thing. Right. It's just like had no abortion it was just, laws. The fact. Yeah. Yeah, just like a statement of fact revealing the legal vacuum, and they lost their minds trying to get this thing shut down, and they actually got Advertising Standards Canada to agree with them that this ad should be taken down. So basically the state of the abortion debate in Canada is myself, my colleagues, other pro-lifers are hitting the streets and talking to Canadians who are very open to the discussion, often change their minds, often cancel their abortions. And then the politicians you referred to, as well as the abortion activists, desperately trying to ensure that this discussion doesn't bubble up from the grassroots into the political arena.
1: Right. We supported an MP who brought some legislation forward about how abortion shouldn't be OHIP-covered procedures because they're not medically necessary. And that didn't even get a reading on Parliament. Can you see you're you're more involved in this than I am. How is it that it seems like anytime there is a sort of grassroots movement that goes beyond just talking to somebody on the streets, that it just kind of gets completely shut down on Parliament?
0: Politically speaking, we basically need a conservative leader who is willing to look at the consensus that exists and says, the majority of Canadians want this, it is unacceptable uh, that we are with you know North Korea and China and our permissiveness on this issue, and we are actually going to tackle it. Until then, basically any brave backbench MP that tries to do something is going to get squelched, and I appreciate those politicians with that courage enormously because despite what some people think, it's not a waste of time. Organizations like the one that I serve at – we are able to use that discussion to define what abortion is in the minds of, of thousands of Canadians. So anytime abortion hits the news, it gives us an opportunity to define what that is to other people. But this is a crisis of leadership. We have a lot of conservatives in this country who have you know, enormous brains and very fragile spines. And they're simply not willing to do what the left is willing to do. The left has the courage of their convictions. I know what Justin Trudeau believes. I know what he thinks. And I know that he is willing to do whatever it takes to ensure that his worldview is enshrined into Canadian law. There are plenty of MPs and conservatives in this country that I know personally, that I know think what we think, that I know believe what we believe, and that I know equally are not going to ever say anything. So basically what we need is people who share our convictions to have as much courage as those who do
1: not. That's an interesting statement, and I think it's a very true statement. And when I think about some of the politicians and the leaders that Canada has had, like Justin Trudeau, I think, man, he would make a great Christian because he <laughs> understands what it means to take dominion, right? And when you think about this topic in particular, I mean, he spends millions, hundreds of millions of taxpayers' dollars outside of Canada going into countries that restrict abortion in order to bring sort of his, his worldview, like you said, his theology to bear on other countries, so oh, he's, he's, he's very, taking he's very dominion gentle. he's a missionary right like oh yeah.
0: yeah he's very evangelical
1: it's crazy i imagine that you're you're fairly familiar with the end abortion now movement that's going on in the states and and some of the abolitionist stuff and and some mm-hmm. of the the very good things that are happening in the states i would say both through incrementalism and through the abolitionist movement i think i would be personally an advocate of, of running all the plays i would just be curious so a lot of our listeners are, are from the States but but the bulk of our listeners are from southwestern Ontario and you know, we get a lot of our information, we get a lot of the fuel for our fight with abortion by what's going on down in the States. So tell us a little bit about how can we get involved on a local level? How can we actually make a difference in Canada? Because I know for myself, I see some of that stuff, and I pray into it, I'm a champion of it. But I want this to happen in my own backyard. I, I want to see some movement here in Canada. Mm-hmm. How, how can your average Christian get involved in the pro-life movement here in Canada?
0: so for us it's person by person first any young person who wants to get uh, you know a four month or two month training program on how to address not only the abortion issue but to get trained in every aspect of the culture war uh, go to endthekilling.ca we've got these amazing internship opportunities and and when I say we teach on every aspect of the culture war I run a full culture war course throughout this internship that covers pornography the background of the sexual revolution assisted suicide by the time you leave this internship you will have had hundreds upon hundreds of conversations. It will be one of the the toughest summers of your life and it will also be one of the most rewarding things that you've ever done. We have hundreds of people coming through our programs and we get to see incredible things happen every day as a result. One of the things I always urge people to do is consider what your place in the pro-life movement is and consider the fact that you do have one. Hmm. So if you're not a young person who can do an internship, perhaps you can support somebody who wants to do an internship or support somebody uh, who needs your financial assistance working in the pro-life movement, perhaps, uh, you can door knock for your pro life MP if you are fortunate enough to have one who is also willing to speak on this issue. Like my MP is, we went we went door knocking with my MP with I vote pro life first T shirts, and he was happy to uh, go door knocking with us wearing those T shirts. And so we were happy to volunteer for him. So seek out opportunities to do something because one of the things I find about Canadians is they get very depressed about the state of the abortion wars, and that's because we fix our eyes on politics, I think, too much. And we have to remember that we are called to care for our neighbors Our politicians will be held to account for their authority We will be held to account on whether or not we stood up for our pre-born neighbors And there's so much that you and I can do Let's not outsource the Christian work of standing up for our pre-born neighbors to the politicians Uh, Let's ensure that we are carrying out our mission and our mandate as well And on that subject, I can promise you, we we see amazing things happen every day We see women cancel their abortions We see people change their minds Fantastic things are happening. And so just because the politicians say the debate is closed, uh, our response to that should be what well, we started without you.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. And I appreciate that segue too because I think uh you know abortion I think is one of the great tragedies of our day. I think it's it's absolutely deserves to be at the top of our list in terms of how we vote, how we think, how we engage. But I mean, you're talking about a much larger culture war. And quite honestly, this is this is where where I started following you and and I read your blog on a regular basis because I see far too many Christians who aren't engaged at all and and even the 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 language you're using culture war there would be a lot of christians who would shy away from that sort of language well aren't we called to love and you know love our neighbor so you use culture war and love your neighbor and i think in the same sentence there so talk to me just a little bit about what you mean by the term culture war and what you think every christian's responsibility is in that war
0: I'm going to tackle that question from several different angles. First of all, i genuinely never understood the people who say, well, we have to love our neighbors, and therefore, you know, we can't be fighting a culture war. I think that's a contradiction in terms, because I love my neighbor, I must fight in a culture war. Canadians are, are so are – the, we're the kind of polite – that allows our neighbors a house to burn down over his head because we're too polite to wake him up, <laughs> and, and and it sort of it sort of really does drive me nuts, right? It, it's kind of like uh, to go back to the abortion example. I find that pastors are often more more willing to tell somebody they can be forgiven for having an abortion than warning against them having one in the first place. Yeah. And this is this sort of a perverse false compassion that results in a woman mourning for the rest of her life over her lost child while still having the comfort of forgiveness. But the same pastor who pointed her in the right direction spiritually, could have warned her against having that abortion in the first place, could have spared her that lifetime of pain. The word I've begun to hate the most is the word nice. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that people expect us to be nice. They also expect us to, to approach controversial issues without controversy. Hmm. When we talk about a culture war, so what does the word culture mean, right? It's derived from the word cult, center. This is a war over what the center of our culture is. And so for us as Christians, we're looking at the good, the true, and the beautiful, and we're watching the center of our culture being pulled toward a, a dark, a culture of death, a place rife. Uh, with, with I would say, demonic activity where children are, are sacrificed for our, our own lusts, for our own ambitions. So this is a war over where the center of our culture is and where our values will be derived from. And there are different battlefields in that culture war. You mentioned sort of the, the intramural and I think rather stupid punching match between the abolitionists um, and there's three or four factions among the abolitionists and then other people. I'm where you are. I think that we should all do the pro-life work we feel called to and and keep our guns pointed in the right direction. We're all manning a different trench. Some of us have uh, have trenches that are closer to the front lines. Uh, Some of us are working inside the church. Some of us are working outside the church. And so I I would prefer to focus my energies uh, on those who believe killing babies is a right rather than focusing my energies on those who believe the same thing as I do. Uh, I would also make the point that when people talk about the culture wars, they say we shouldn't make secular arguments. I reject the idea that there's any such thing as a secular argument to begin with. Mm. When I make the case uh, that a baby is a baby and that every embryology textbook in every med school in Canada tells me this, that we know when life begins, that science tells us when life begins and that we can see because of this beautiful uh, in-the-womb photography what that child is, that's not secular arguments. I see no ground the devil on that i think that's god's arguments and just because the person i'm I'm communicating with can't quite see that yet doesn't mean we won't get there eventually i ironically think that a lot of people create this dichotomy between god's arguments and secular arguments all truth is god's truth whether or not he is he is named explicitly in the defense of that truth so i have to say and maybe you can help me out with this I'm always a little bit bewildered, to be completely honest, by people who say we shouldn't be fighting the culture war, and maybe we're just operating with different definitions of that. Maybe we don't understand what a culture is, but I'm unaware of, of any verse in Scripture, and I'm unaware even of any major reformer or any major thinker in our tradition who would advocate ceding you know, the, the very ground we live in and the very country we live in to the forces of darkness. I'm, I'm not aware of where that worldview would come from.
1: So a couple of things I'd say to that. I think amen to everything you're saying. I think you're absolutely right. When Jesus said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he meant all of it, all truth, all logic, all reason. I mean, it all belongs to him. And so amen that uh, all truth is God's truth. And I think we're we're meant to, to fight with all the tools that, uh, that God gives us. When I think about the people who don't think we ought to be involved in a culture war, I think there have been plenty of pastors uh, who have gone on to say things like, um you know we're we're here to win souls, uh, we're here to preach the gospel, we're not here to change legislation, right mm-hmm. we're, we're not here to get involved in a culture war because this culture is all all the world is going down yeah, in a handbasket and they have mm-hmm. a sort of they have a theology of escapism. Where this right. world is is going to hell in a handbasket, we're all going to be raptured away anyway, and so what's the point? And uh, you know whether you want to speak to the theology of that or not, we do often. But uh, right. I would just yeah, so say,
0: I, I, I would actually, uh, I would want to make one point there because I find that point of view. It actually does exactly what the abortion activists do which is it devalues the life of the pre-born child in the womb because if we were marching 300 toddlers into a warehouse on the edge of our major cities every day and shooting them in the head you wouldn't find a lot of pastors at least i really hope you wouldn't right. saying this is not relevant to our witness speaking out against this is not relevant to who we are as christians this is a culture war and we're not going to dirty our hands trying to rescue these toddlers from the people that are shooting them and so when they they say this, they act as if abortion doesn't end the life of a human being created in God's image. They act as if God does not judge nations for national sins. They act as if the church Mm. does not also bear the judgment of the child sacrifice that's been going on since 1969. We cannot separate ourselves from these issues, even if we badly want to. And so I always find that sort of shoving the abortion issue into the arena, the arena of the political is, is an abrogation of duty. We have the politicians saying abortion's a religious issue. We have pastors saying abortion's a political issue. And the corpses of our pre-born neighbors pile up in between while we all pass the buck back and forth. So
1: yeah.
0: I would just say that, you know, look, if we get all obsessed with passing laws and that's our primary goal, yeah, we can lose our focus pretty easily. Politics is a both easy and convenient idol to have. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to reject... A criticism that might be valid, but on the the idea that we shouldn't be standing up for our pre-born neighbors, I think is a cop-out. And I think a lot of pastors do that because they don't want to face the inevitable backlash you're going to get doing this in today's culture.
1: Yeah, amen. I agree with all of that. I imagine you get a lot of pushback for the language you use about – I know I do when when we're talking about abortion and we talk about I, – I don't even – generally, we're, we're not using terms like abortion and, and that we, we – Killing babies, right? Like killing... And uh, I imagine you get a lot of pushback for your language as well. And and some of the language you use there, I just love to for you to tease out a little bit. You talked about our culture being kind of overrun with demonic darkness, and you talked about children being sacrificed. And uh, the image that comes to my mind, and I know you wrote about this, is, uh, is Michelle Williams, the actress at the Golden Globes. Yeah. You know, she's up there. She's holding on to a golden idol, literally. And mm-hmm. she's saying that she would not have won this prestigious award, she would not have made this accomplishment had she not had an abortion in other words if she hadn't have sacrificed her child on the altar of success she wouldn't have gotten to where she was and so i you know i know you probably get a lot of pushback for the kind of language you use i would just love for you to to anybody who might be listening and have that criticism of the very combative language you're using just defend that for a minute
0: All right. Well, I I use different language in different contexts because I use the language I think my audience could understand. But I think it's Mm. fair to say that regardless of my audience, people always find my language a bit strong. So when it comes to um, speaking, especially with Christians and talking about it as as sacrifice, I've heard a lot of lectures by great people who point out that just as the the pagan tribes in the Old Testament sacrificed their children to gods like Molech and Baal and Ashtaroth, right, that, that we today sacrifice our children on the of you know whatever it is, autonomy, selfishness. You know, the more awful example you just mentioned, yep. one of the points I would actually like to make, and I'd love everybody to just to chew over this and think about it, is that we are actually a lot worse than the pagans who sacrificed their children in the Old Testament because they sacrificed their children of their gods because they believed their children were the most valuable thing they had to offer. Often, the last thing they had to offer, we threw away our children as if they are worth nothing. Yeah. So their horrific sin which God punished them for and often wiped out their cultures for came out of a perverse recognition of the value of their children. Ours comes from something precisely the opposite. So uh, I guess when, in, in, in talking about what child sacrifice is, I'll just double down and note that I actually think we're worse than than the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the, uh, the Canaanites, the other people who practice these these horrific versions of child sacrifice. And, I, and if that isn't demonic, I simply don't know what it is. I think in North America, we get comfortable not talking about the forces of light versus the forces of darkness mm-hmm. but i i would encourage people to look at my friend uh, john barrows he i just saw him last week actually spent some time with him in front of the abortion clinic that he stands in front of in florida and he talks about how he sees this play out every single day and so if you can't factor in a theology of demonology Uh, When we're talking about pre-born children created in God's image being ripped limb from limb for a golden idol, I don't know where it fits into your theology, and I think that's up to you to work out rather than for me to defend. When it it comes to killing... You don't have to take my word for it. It's, it's always so interesting to me when pro-life people want to assist the other side in making this horror sound more palatable, right? Dr. Leroy Carhart admits that what he's doing is killing babies and says he doesn't care. Dr. Fraser Fellows of London, Ontario, admits as well that abortion is actually killing. It is actually ending the life of a child. And so when I say that abortion it kills a baby, it kills a child, I'm quoting the guys who do it. Even Dr. Willie Parker, who claims to be a Christian and admits he's killed something like 20, between 20 and 30,000 babies, he's pretty upfront that he's killing as well. They're just making the case that it's a justified form of killing. And so I think those of us who don't want to use uh, that sort of language are covering for the other side, the same way people who don't want us to show what abortion looks like because they think it's going to disturb people. My response to that was why shouldn't people be disturbed by the fact that we're killing 300 babies every single day? And how in the world are we supposed to wake people up to what's going on by assisting the opposition in covering up the injustice? When there are people who spend more time critiquing what the pro-life movement is doing to expose abortion than they are critiquing abortion itself, I would just humbly ask people to consider that they might be uh, batting for the wrong team.
1: Yeah, that's good. It's interesting, as I was uh, thinking through this and, and chatting with some people at our local hospital, I, I live uh, right down the road from Victoria Hospital here in London, Ontario, and, and we, have, uh, we have people outside there pretty much every day. And as you have some conversations with people, it's interesting how... So many people are just completely misinformed about what's like you said, uh, you know, hearing quotes from abortion doctors who are carrying this out who admit that they're ending lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, i'm just I'm baffled with the amount of technology that's out there that, you know, the clump of cells arguments are still being used. It just it, it baffles me at how uninformed the public is on this issue, yeah. and quite honestly, how uninformed Christians who call themselves pro-life are on this, because the clump of cells argument, I've watched that argument just silence Christians.
0: There's a healthy dose of willful ignorance here. I won't say mm. it is an ignorance, but there's a lot of people who don't want to know the truth for obvious reasons, right? right? because it's uncomfortable when you realize what abortion is, and then your second question – Uh, That you ask yourself after realizing what abortion is, is what does this reality demand of me? And regardless of what that happens to be for you, uh, it's not going to be comfortable, whatever whatever it is. Uh, And the same thing is true for for somebody who is living the sort of lifestyle that makes abortion, quote unquote, necessary. When they come face-to-face with what abortion actually is, it's incredibly inconvenient for them because suddenly one of the backup options, if they're a person still in possession of a a functioning conscience, that that option is going to be taken off the table. And so I can give you real-world examples of this. We set up a a large display called the Abortion Awareness Project on campuses. We have had people livid upon seeing the images and come back and tell us the following year. They're angry that we showed them what abortion was because when they got pregnant, they couldn't bring themselves to have an abortion because they couldn't get the picture out of their head.
1: Wow.
0: They're angry that they saw (laughs) it because ignorance to them was bliss, right? Right. Uh, But once they saw the image, you know, they might be able to forget what you say. They might be able to forget the discussion you have, but the pictures follow them home, and they cannot bring themselves to do that. And so we have a lot of people actually who get quite angry that they've been exposed to the reality about abortion, but their children are alive as a result of the fact that they did.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. This might uh, kind of uh, tip our conversation in a different direction here. One of the things I see with the abortion arguments that are being um, levied against pro-lifers now is this... There's a lot of people who would agree that life begins at conception, life, sort of the, mm-hmm. this nebulous term of life, but personhood, right? When does life yeah. become a person because bacteria is life and all this kind of stuff? And what I see, I, I find it very interesting, is there's just this rise in very Gnostic thinking in our culture now mm-hmm. where whether it's transgenderism, right, whether it's the, many of the – you look at the LGBT, you know, 2 plus Q – However long that acronym gets now, you yeah. talk about this coven of people out in uh, BC who identify as wolves. You have ecosexuals. I mean, you have all these just very bizarre sorts of things that people are called in and I think that that's hit the abortion conversation because we have this sort of well yeah that's life but it's not personhood right and and so there's this like gnostic idea that there's this immaterial sense in which that doesn't necessarily match with reality and you can just make that up it can be whatever you want and so how do you get around those kinds of arguments
0: well first of all by pointing out exactly what you just said which is that you can make that up so I had this discussion several times last week on some campuses actually and one of the things I always ask them to provide to me the students that I'm speaking with is name a single time in human history where the phrase personhood wasn't used to exclude somebody from rights and nobody can one. ever bring up when personhood wasn't used to exclude rather than include rights yeah and that, and that's because Human beings are persons and persons are human beings and we only ever try to split the two when we're trying to hurt somebody and generally speaking kill somebody. Right? It's why African Americans were considered three-fourths of a person. Well, because, you know, if you if you if you knock off a fourth. You can enslave them, right? It's when women were not considered constitutional persons. It was to guarantee that they couldn't go get an education, they couldn't own property, so on and so forth. It's Aboriginals were not considered to be legal persons. It meant that all sorts of injustices could be perpetrated on them, their children could be taken away, you name it, and so on and so forth. In every single instance, when you used arbitrary characteristics to deny somebody legal Mm -hmm. personhood, you saw injustice being inflicted on them. And so what we have to recognize is that the language of legal person is the language of the oppressor and anybody who starts using it is generally using it because he or she wishes ill or at least wishes permission to do ill to a subset uh, of members of the human family and so with the pre-born ch- uh, children of course it has nothing to do with uh, their ethnicity or their sex although in China uh, of course we're missing 380 million baby girls so it can be um, have something to do with their sex. But generally speaking, it's because of their age. We think we can do whatever we want to them because of how old they are and because of how totally dependent they are. And so I actually find legal personhood to be one of the least convincing arguments presented by the opposition because it's so transparently junk philosophy designed by oppressors specifically to inflict violence on a group of people that they find inconvenient.
1: It's interesting that I think the three main arguments that the South was using to maintain slavery right before the Civil War was, well, these blacks aren't people, right? They're Mm three-fourths of a person. Number two, my property, my choice. You can't tell me what to do on my land. And number three, it's legal. And those are the three arguments, really, when I'm talking to those who are advocating for abortion. Those are the three things they use, right? My body, my choice. We don't know Mm -hmm. when personhood exists. They're not people. And it's the law of the land. And it's Mm -hmm. it's amazing if you try to say that to to somebody, the, the sort of venom and darkness that arises.
0: That's the thing too is so a lot of people say it's controversial to say that abortion is an act of violence. It's controversial to point out that abortion kills a baby. But at the same time, it doesn't actually matter what you say. It doesn't matter. It's so it matters how you say it. We can never be jackasses. But. <laughs> We have to. We have to speak with compassion and we have to speak with humility. And by humility, I mean very specifically we can never think we're better than anybody else. Right. But this idea that we can somehow approach this topic without controversy is just bizarre to me. One of my friends got punched in the face for sidewalk chalking I Love Babies on the sidewalk in Toronto. Wow. You know, in, t- in 2013, a woman got put in the hospital after she was attacked by somebody with a knife for uh, going to uh, to life chain. You know, wow. that one Sunday a year, yeah. like, and I'm sure you've seen the signs. Yeah. This is not controversial stuff. It's like adoption, a loving option, and stuff like that, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter what you say. People are going to respond with violence towards any perceived condemnation of their lifestyle and their actions. And so if I'm going to get the backlash anyways, I'd prefer to do something in the meantime that's actually saving babies and changing minds.
1: Yeah, this is Romans 1, right? Whatever the arguments are, at the end of the day, there's a whole subsect of people who hate God and are going to suppress the truth they know because they don't want to be held accountable for their lives. We've been talking about abortion, and I think, you know, more and more you're talking about the pastor who's more willing to tell a woman that she can be forgiven after having an abortion than to not have the abortion when she's thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And so it's sad to me how many churches and denominations are slowly caving on this issue and a whole litany of of other sexual issues. I can't think of many sermons that I've heard in evangelical churches over the last little while that address the issues of pornography. And you said that's one of the big things that you guys talk about in your internships. Why do you think that there's this gradual move to the left in even evangelical churches? Is it just spinelessness?
0: I'll give you three of the primary reasons. The first one is that there's an unbelievable push from a culture which cannot be overestimated Uh, underestimated pardon me right it is not easy to withstand the the, the cultural currents that we face and one of the things and you know this is I think the thing that people get the most irritated to me about when I say this is that because Christian culture is to a large degree indistinguishable from secular culture We are watching young people who grow up on a diet of the same Netflix garbage, who watch the same Hollywood movies, who listen to the same secular music, and therefore have a lot of the same influences and a lot of the same heroes sort of move along with the current. So, number one, like the culture is incredibly powerful, and we have not separated ourselves from that culture. I saw prominent evangelicals writing entire essays defending Christians watching Game of Thrones— which is basically Lord of the Rings plus torture porn. This was being defended on platforms like the National Review. And they would get angry if you questioned that. So one, I think the culture is against us, and we are not against the culture, which is a huge problem. Second of all, the biggest concession we've made is we've bought into the culture's idea of what love is. When they say love is never make me feel bad, we have kind of— accepted that. We think that saying no isn't loving, and we forget that what the definition of love really is, is love is wanting the other's good. And so when I speak with somebody who's had an abortion and tell her what abortion actually is, I want what is best for her. I want her to see what she's done and so she can heal from it. But I also want to prevent her from having another abortion. Yeah. Right. One of the people like people often ask us, what what happens to post-abortive women see uh, the images that you guys show? I always point out the post-abortive or pre-abortive, a a woman who's had an abortion, is times magnitude more likely to have another one. Hmm. She is part of my target audience. Right. right, one of her children has been lost. There is no good reason that the next one needs to be lost as well. And I can give you the names of people that I know personally who didn't abort their second and third child because they saw a picture of what abortion was after they aborted their first one. We've bought into this idea that that you know, love means you know never hurting anybody's feelings. Love means never presenting tough truths, and uh, and love basically means that. So things that make us feel bad or we think might make other people feel bad should be avoided by Christianity because God is love. And I'll just give you one example. I think it's very difficult for a lot of people. Let's say uh, you have a gay friend, and I have several. You've known them for a long time. You love them very much. They're getting married, and they invite you to their marriage, which we would not consider to be a marriage by Christian definition. Right. And then what do you do? Say no, that you won't go. And I had this conversation with one of my friends at one point. Would you come to my wedding? And I said, no. And we had a discussion. Why? Why wouldn't you? And my response to that was, look, if I believe what I believe to be true, then by celebrating something that puts you farther away from God, I would actually be saying I hate you. But I would be showing up so that I wouldn't have to feel bad about saying no and that you wouldn't have to feel bad about the fact that I disagree with you. But it wouldn't be a real friendship. It wouldn't be a real love. It wouldn't account for anything. Right, but it depends on how you define love. So I think that's another really, really important thing. The third thing is I I think pornography has more to do with this than anybody has. Like, like I don't think anybody has a, a good grasp of just how much pornography has absolutely leveled christian culture yeah and I, and I don't think it's just christian culture pornography has also leveled culture there's secular feminists and secular scholars who take a look at you know how much porn users read literature and attend the opera and all this other stuff too and i've just found out that porn is just a destroyer of culture period but it's particularly a destroyer of christian culture because of how demonic it is and i'll explain what i mean by demonic in that sense If marriage, the relationship between men and women, should represent Christ's death on the cross, as in the husband gets to sacrifice everything for the woman up to including his own body, then pornography is a perverse reversal of that, right? right? Uh, It's it's him consuming another uh, a woman for his own pleasure. He's sacrificing her body on the altar of his lust. He's a sexual carnivore, a sexual cannibal. It's the precise reversal of the gospel, and therefore pornography is is demonic in a very real way. And if you look at the research on pornography, over 50% of pastors, evangelical pastors, admitted when surveyed to having looked at porn in the last month. Admitted to. Over 50%, right? I remember hearing uh, this research get read out at uh, a major conference uh, in Texas a couple of years ago, and you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Yeah. So people are like, why are more people talking about porn? It's because porno- porn has made collaborators of all. Right. Pornography has, has castrated the leadership. Pornography has made Christian men who are supposed to be fighting for these things eunuchs. And so I think pornography has turned men into predators. It's turned women into prey. It's groomed men to be predators. It's groomed women to accept abuse. It's even groomed Christians to believe that sexual violence and perversion is permitted in the romantic context. We've bought into this garbage idea that consent is a godly standard, when that has nothing to do with the godly standards. That's the world standard. That's what the world had left when they threw everything else out.
1: Yeah, that's right. That,
0: that's not a Christian standard at all. Right. And, and if you want to see what happens when the sexual revolution finishes up, take a look at the Me Too movement. It's yeah. basically they've realized that there's no rules left. We need to re-implement rules, except for in their version of the rules, there's no redemption. Yeah. So they threw out the Christian strictures on sex, but they did so without implementing any idea uh, of redemption or forgiveness when this is all over. So. Believe it or not, that's my brief three reasons.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think you nailed it. And I think I, I saw actually on LifeSite News, which is another of the uh, the websites that you write for, I saw an article just uh, yesterday, I think, that uh, talked about the Harvey Weinstein being found guilty for mm-hmm. several instances of rape and predatory sexual assault. The sort of feigned outrage um, that you see in Hollywood – that many people. I mean, even who was it? Ricky Gervais, who just yeah. blasted <laughs> blasted them all at the last Golden Globes for the hypocrisy in Hollywood. And so you have all these Christians, and particularly you have all this these Christians in this reformed social media sphere. Who can look at that and laugh at that and point out the hypocrisy there, but I think you've hit it right on the head, is that the same hypocrisy is going on in our churches. And one of the reasons we don't see men acting like men in our churches when it comes to fighting the culture wars and fighting back the sexual revolution is because they know that they've already caved on this issue and they're not willing to give it up.
0: That's exactly it. One of the things I would like to ask everybody who has a tendency to feel like they're better than the other people is how many people, how many men in our circles, in our congregations, sitting in our pews are getting off by watching on Pornhub the same things that Harvey Weinstein did in real life?
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. And so the Bible tells us that judgment begins in the house of God. So if as Christians, and you and I are both here as guys who are engaged in the culture war, are passionate about trying to see the darkness pushed back by the light of the gospel and by the witness of the church, if judgment begins in the house of God, where do we start the culture war? What does that look like in our local churches? Not everybody's going to be blogging on the bridgehead. Not everybody's (laughs) going to be as politically informed as you are. So what does that look like for each and every one of us sitting in the pews?
0: Yeah, so I think that's a very broad question because, as you pointed out, this does mean different things for different people. When I look at, so, for example, the abortion issue, to revisit uh, something I said earlier, I think that everybody has to do something, but I think that looks different for a lot of people. Uh, so for some people, that's going to mean, you know, volunteering or activism or an internship with CCBR. For other people, that's going to mean, you know, helping out a you know good Christian pro-life political candidate. For other people, it's going to mean just getting trained in how to talk about the abortion issue so that they can talk to people around them. And so here's something everybody can do and I'll recommend this to all of the listeners regardless of where you think that you fit in. We have a great resource called A Stuck, a complete guide to discussing the tough questions about abortion, which you can order at thebridgehead.ca or at Lifecycle Books. And it basically takes all the difficult arguments, every single one of them – this is comprehensive – and enables you to have discussions with people around you because there are people in your peer group, people that you know that only you can reach, Hmm. that pro-life activists can't reach, that the politician can't reach, but that may find themselves in a crisis circumstance, that may find themselves pregnant, that only you know. And I'll give you an example I, I remember vividly once. One of my cousins, who had never engaged in the pro-life movement before, had no idea how to discuss this, sending me an email, actually when I was on vacation, out of the blue, (laughs) saying I overheard somebody at my work talking about abortion. She's suddenly expecting and is thinking about having an abortion. What do I say? You know and She could have just ignored it and said, I don't know this girl. There's nothing I can do. But you know, she emailed me for a week, all the different arguments, finally showing her what abortion actually looked like. This girl changed her mind because uh, somebody who just was one of her colleagues, not one of her friends, just one of her colleagues, took responsibility after hearing that a baby's life was at risk and that baby is alive today as a result. And so all of your listeners can equip themselves on how to have these discussions and keep their eyes and ears open for those around them. For their neighbors, because we are all called to stand up for our neighbors. So I would say that our responsibility starts with those God has placed immediately around us. And that's something we can all do regardless of where we think we fit into this broader movement as a whole.
1: Yeah. That's really good. The phrase that jumped out to me as you said it there is, uh, as you're describing that story, is he took responsibility. In a culture that hates too much responsibility, right? In a culture that, that is uh, very insular and self-centered, right? Uh, I think it was Martin Luther who defined sin as curving in on oneself, right? So that very hmm. self-centeredness of it. But I would say that what we can each do is take responsibility. And for some of us, that means first and foremost, finding a way to to kick the porn habit that we've been hiding right? For, for a lot of us, it means taking responsibility and recognizing you have a place in this culture war. And I, I love exactly what you said. Take responsibility for the sphere in which God placed you. That's your neighborhood. That's your family. That's your workplace. That's your church. That's all of those things. Yeah. You have a particular MP. You have particular neighbors. God's placed you there for a reason. And you're called by God to take responsibility for that sphere because you are his ambassador, right? You are his representative. That's good. Yeah.
0: yeah. Christians are localists, first and foremost. To rip off that point, one of the th- mistakes I think we often make is we look at politics and we moan that the politicians aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And that's sort of an evergreen complaint. Let's not forget that the politicians will be held to account for what they were supposed to do and didn't. That doesn't alleviate us of our responsibility. We were told to love our neighbors not to give our MP the job of doing that for us.
1: Yeah, Amen. And quite honestly, I mean, we could start an entire other podcast, but I know you got places to go. But on all of the things that the church has abdicated its responsibility for, when you look at the Bible and you look at the the spheres of government that God has placed—right, personal government and family government, church government and civil government—it mm-hmm. um, seems like generation after generation, every Christian generation finds something new to take from the family or the church sphere and and give to the civil magistrates. <laughs> you take yeah. this on, right? You take education. You take health care. You take caring for the poor. You take, you know, fighting injustice. And uh, and we've just abdicated our responsibility and hey, we pay taxes, so let's let uh, let's yeah. let them do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, so, I agree. Just because you pay taxes to Caesar doesn't mean you let Caesar raise your
1: kids. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, hey, Jonathan, thanks for being so generous with your time. Thanks for coming on here. Um, I just want to kind of give you the last word here. I want to recommend to everybody the bridgehead.ca is where you blog and uh, where your books are for sale. I actually ordered the Culture Wars, so that should be, you know, Amazon tells me it'll be here tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so I'm looking forward to getting started on that. But I read your blog regularly. It's a great way to keep your finger on what's going on in the culture, and you help us to think through it from a biblical perspective. You also mentioned endthekilling.ca is where you can get mm-hmm. a lot of the resources that you mentioned today, yes, and uh, and where people can sign up for some of the training resources that you said, and even the internship. So those are some things that I would recommend to all of our listeners, but I want to give you the last last word if you have anything to say or anywhere to direct people.
0: Yeah, as the communications director for the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, I will be remiss if I didn't leave it there by putting people's responsibility for their pre-born neighbors on themselves and saying, do go to endthekilling.ca, get equipped. We would love to give a presentation to your church on how to have these discussions. Uh, we would love to have you sign up for an internship to get fully trained in how to engage the culture. The good news is we see people change their minds every day. So for those of you who are out there listening and thinking, you know what, the world is a very depressing place. Every day when we go over the streets, we see good things happen. You can see those things, too, if you get involved.
1: Amen. God is the God who's able to do a whole lot more than we give him credit for more often than not. So thanks so much for all you do. Thanks for uh, helping to equip us. And thanks for coming on, Jonathan.
0: Yep. thanks for having me.
1: All right. See everybody next time.